0: 2,000 years ago, after a violent death, Jesus was raised from the dead. And in this remarkable, miraculous, unrepeatable event, the God of Israel, who is the creator of the whole world, started something new. He started the new creation. The resurrection is not primarily about you going to heaven after you die. Now that is part of it. That's a very important part of it for which we're very grateful. But the resurrection is primarily about the mind-boggling fact that God is remaking the whole world. And in the resurrection of Jesus, he started by remaking Jesus. And that was the first act of God's new creation. The resurrection of Jesus is the validation of Jesus' claim to be the Messiah of Israel and thus the king of the whole world. Jesus' resurrection is the start Of the new creation. And it is the commissioning of his followers to announce to the world Jesus is the King. It's the commissioning of his followers to work in the power of the Holy Spirit in this world, now, this side of death, to implement the achievement of Jesus, and by doing that, to anticipate. The final renewal of all things. The resurrection of Jesus is the commissioning of Jesus' followers to do works for justice and goodness and beauty and truth. At the heart of the resurrection, at the heart of Christianity, is this call for you and me to notice the brokenness of the world. To notice what needs to be done. And to get on with the business of doing it. You see, when you make the resurrection fundamentally about going to heaven when you die, you miss that the fundamental fact of the resurrection is new creation now. And you are an ambassador, an agent of that kingdom. Get on now with the business of resurrection. Don't merely wait until you die for the resurrection to become a reality that matters in your life. This is the great reality that I've been teaching over the past five weeks. And for four of those weeks, we've been swimming around in John chapter 21. And this morning, we have returned to it again. John 21, if ever there was a part of Scripture that Augustine was right when he said Scripture has a wondrous depth, that it's like an ocean, John 21 is that you can return to John 21 for the rest of your life and discover ever anew increasingly marvelous things about God and about his world and about you and about the ways and works of God in our lives today in John chapter 21 we focused last week on what God was doing with Peter We looked at the kind of last portion of the chapter. We looked at verses 20, um, verses, uh, what did we look at? Verses 20 through 23. We saw that Jesus had turned his loving attention to Peter. This great king, this king of the cosmos, the last thing we see in John's glorious gospel that starts out exalting God's greatness before time, ends with Jesus in this very intimate confrontation with Peter. We see Peter, this boisterous, arrogant man, clamoring for attention, parading his strengths, confident in his own importance. But we find Jesus quieting him and calming him with his love so that he can draw out of Peter, who Peter was made to be. In fact, I finished the sermon last week by making the point that our lives are lived well only when they are lived on the terms of their creation. We can only live a good life, a well-lived life, when we live it on terms of the of the God who created us and who he created us to be. And that being a Christian at its heart is about coming to terms with who God made you to be. Because the Jesus talking to Peter in John 21 is, John, verse chapter one says, the Lord of the cosmos who made Peter. And this reality that our Redeemer is indeed our Creator. That the one who died for us is the one that we sang about who knit us together. That the one who paid the ultimate price to redeem us is the one who knows us best. Who who made us to be who we are. And that to be a Christian is to accept Christ not only as our maker but also as our redeemer. And growing day by day into the increasingly glorious creature... That can only be described in all of God's creation as someone made in the image of God. You see, discipleship is about becoming like Jesus. And that means discipleship is about becoming truly human and truly yourself. This is what we see Jesus doing with Peter at the end of John's gospel. So the point of the sermon last week was that our work for the kingdom of God, our implementation of the achievement of the resurrection of Jesus, the way in which each one of us does that, the way in which each one of us anticipates the final and complete healing of creation is for each one of us to be who God made us to be, so that the gift that God made us to be is offered to the world. This week, we're going to back up and look at verses 15 through 19 to see exactly how do we become our true selves. How can we become who we truly are, who God made us to be? Now, first of all, becoming who God made you to be is not easy. This conversation between Jesus and Peter is not a fun conversation. It was not an easy conversation for Peter. I suspect that in the midst of it, he wished he had stayed on the boat. I suspect that in the midst of it, he felt foolish for having run to shore. When he discovered what was awaiting him on shore, it was not fun. Did you notice Peter's insecurity in the conversation? Ever since the bad weekend, you know, the weekend we call Good Friday, which for Peter was not a good weekend. Do any of you know what Peter was doing that weekend? Denying Christ, running from Christ, throwing everything he had lived for away, failing miserably in Peter's life. It was a bad weekend. Ever since then, Peter no longer trusts his instincts. You see, you see this in each of his three answers. Before the bad weekend, Peter was all about his confidence and his bravado, parading his importance. But now when Jesus confronts him, all he can do is appeal to the supreme court of Jesus' deep knowledge of him. Do you love me more than these? (laughs) You know, that's a mocking question, don't you? You know, not long before this, Peter had said, I love you more than these. Jesus is putting Peter's words right back into his face. Oh, Peter, is it true? Do you really stand out that well from the crowd? Do you love me more than these? And you see what Peter says. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you, period. He's not willing to go there. He's not willing to walk back into that comparative way of existing. Verse 16. Do you love me? Holy holy moly. I've got to face the question again. Yes, Lord. You know that I love you. Verse 17. Do you love me? Lord, you know everything. You know what happened that weekend. You know what I've done. You know that I love you. Now, if you're familiar with the Gospels, you know that Peter had a nasty little habit of elevating himself above his fellow disciples. He liked to claim that he loved Jesus more, that he would be more loyal, more faithful. But Peter didn't. He didn't love Jesus more than John. The brutal reality is that he wasn't as faithful and loyal as the women. He is upstaged by every disciple. And now we see Jesus asking Peter if he is still so confident in himself. But Peter has changed. He he no longer says that he loves Jesus more. He no longer compares himself. Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. What he's saying is, I cannot appeal to my own convictions or my conscience anymore. Lord, I don't trust myself anymore, but I do appeal to your intimate knowledge of my heart. Now, what is going on here is critical for understanding who God made you. To be. In this exchange between Peter and Jesus. We see something, and if we don't get this firmly fixed in our minds, then we will misunderstand what it means to say that discipleship is becoming like Jesus, which means becoming truly human and truly yourself. If you don't understand something about this exchange, then you will misunderstand me when I say, like I said last week, that your calling is to become who God made you to be, and to present that unrepeatably unique gift to the world. You see, becoming yourself, your true self, it does not mean that everything in your character, everything in your personality, God accepts. It does not mean that God takes you as you are. It does not mean that all of your desires he affirms. It does not mean what the self help section says when it talks about self realization. It doesn't mean what our world means in its mantra be true to yourself. You see, all through the scriptures, this is one part of scripture we've started, you know, like three fourths of the way through the Bible. We've dipped into a story that's already been going on. And there's a whole lot assumed in this passage. And one of the serious issues that has been assumed. Is the doctrine of the sinfulness of humans. That every aspect of who we are. Is distorted. And warped. In some way or another. And the key thing. Is how do you tell the bits of you that are in fact a part of the true you? The God-given humanness inside of you. And those parts you should accept and celebrate. And how do you determine which bits of you are actually things that even though they feel like they're deeply a part of who you are. That they are things you should repent of and forswear. Yeah, your desires may lead you in all sorts of directions. But part of the deal is that there are some of your desires you must learn to say no to. And the standard for what you say yes to and what you say no to is not what you feel. Your desires will lead you in all sorts of directions, but part of the deal of being a Christian is, is learning which desires to say no to and which desires to say yes to. Discovering who God made you to be is not merely about doing what feels natural. The problem is that too often the church sees that mantra, do what you want to do, and it attacks it. It's not all wrong. It's in which bits of it are right and wrong that there is the difference between a Christian view and a non-Christian view. The hard but brutal reality of sin in this world is rooted in the fact that our sin and all sins that have gone before us have made us less human and less truly our unique selves. We are centered on ourselves and turned in on ourselves, and we have lost our true selves. And to cap it all off, we tend to think that that part of us, our broken, sinful self, is our true self, but it's not. And it's so hard to know the difference between what in us is God given and God made, what in us is the true us perking through, peeking through, and which in us is our sinful nature peeking through. On another occasion, Jesus was talking to Peter. And the rest of the disciples are in the backdrop. And he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. You see, that is true. There is a self inside of you that you must deny that is not of God. It is broken. It is a false self. It is a mask. Becoming your true self means denying that part of you. And you have lived with that part of you for so long. You often, I often don't know the difference. And this is hard work. There is a serious cost involved. It is so serious, Jesus could only describe it as carrying around your own gas chamber, your own electric chair, your own noose, your own cross. And when you see that part of you, putting it in the ground, climbing up on it, and nailing that part of you to the cross. This is hard work. This is serious business. It is not fun. It is not easy. It is painful. And this leads me to my second point. My first point is that becoming who God made you to be is not easy. My second point is that you need Jesus to become who Jesus made you to be. When I said last week that our lives are well lived only when they are lived in the terms Of their creation with God loving us and God making us and God revealing us and God commanding us and with us responding. I was very quick to say that accepting the terms of our creation requires accepting the terms of our redemption. There is no path to your true self apart from the cross. Not just your cross. But Jesus' cross. And it is Jesus that Peter is interacting with. Jesus, the creator of the world and the redeemer of the world. He paid the ultimate price, not only to deliver the world from the curse, but to deliver Peter from the curse. The curse that has gone all the way into every square inch of his soul. This cancer has metastasized. It is everywhere in Peter. This is not about some path of self-realization that is easy. This requires Jesus' incredible sacrifice on the cross because here's the deal. The brokenness in you is a spiritual power that you cannot break. It required the cross and the resurrection to break its power. There is a real power and it is really over you. And apart from the cross and apart from the resurrection, you can't get free from these shackles. The brokenness in your life is far deeper than you can imagine. And it is far more powerful than you can imagine. Your sin is so extensive and so utterly catastrophic that nothing less than the creator of the universe is required to deliver you. Becoming the true you. The you God originally intends for you to be. This is such a difficult task. But notice how God is working with Peter. Notice what's going on in John 21 between Jesus and Peter. Jesus is seeking one characteristic above all others in Peter. What does he keep pushing Peter to? What matters more than anything else? Peter, do you love me? That matters more than anything else. If you do not love me, forget it. You will not escape. You will not become truly human and you will not become who you were made to be. That is the ground. That is the foundation. That is the thing Jesus pushes him to three times. If a person genuinely loves Jesus Christ more than anything else in the world, even if you are like Peter and your record Is a miserable failure. I love Peter's third response. Lord, you know everything. You know how small this love is. I can no longer. I can no longer extrapolate on it. I can no longer brag on its vastness. But it is there. Aren't you glad for that? Aren't you glad that all Jesus is doing is scratching around? Aren't you glad that Jesus wanted Peter's last memory of his encounter with Jesus to not be denying him three times, but saying, I love you three times? You know what Jesus was doing? He was drawing out of Peter the truth. Peter did love Jesus. And his denial of Jesus did not erase that. Isn't this a tender, gracious response of Jesus to Peter? Jesus, in this passage of Scripture, God is teaching us that it is only in loving the Creator revealed in Jesus, it is only in loving Him that that we can become truly human and truly ourselves. Now look, this is hard. And so Jesus is saying to Peter, and by the way, Peter's not finished at the end of chapter 21. We learn later on in the New Testament, he goes back to his old ways and he just ruins it all over again. This is such a difficult journey that it takes a commitment of faith to an ongoing love for Jesus. Do you love me? Follow me. Do you love me? Follow me. Do you love me? Follow me. That is the only way, Peter, you can become truly human and truly yourself. So look at me. Do you love Jesus? Do you love Him? Do you love Jesus? Not in theory, but in reality. Do you spend time with Jesus? Do you meet with Jesus as the lover of your soul on a daily basis? This is your only hope. This is my only hope to become truly human and truly Aubrey. The problem is we don't have Peter like, we don't have Jesus like Peter did. I mean don't you wish you had Jesus like Peter did? I mean, I don't think anybody in this room, Jesus showed up and cooked breakfast for you this morning and said, have a seat right here. Let's talk. Wouldn't it be nice to have that? But you don't. So what, what do you do? Well, there are two primary components to spending time with Jesus when you're in our position. Prayer and Scripture. Every day, you must set aside time to stop thinking about everything else and to sit with Jesus in prayer and in Scripture. If you do not do this, you will not become truly human and truly yourself. It is impossible to overestimate the importance of you getting alone Every day with Jesus. And if it is not with Jesus in prayer and scripture. It will become a homeboy of your own making. It is impossible to overemphasize the importance of this. What I'm saying. Is that you've got to learn to attend to Jesus. And you know this. If Janelle says, Aubrey, do, I, do you love me? And I say, yes, I do. And I never spend time with her. That's what Jesus is getting at here. And when you read the Bible, let me just say, it is not so much a matter of reading a book as of seeking Someone. When you read the Bible, you're seeking the face of Christ. I love the way the 12th century German theologian Honorius said it. He said, with all its ardor, the church seeks in Scripture the one whom she loves. Don't treat the Bible like an encyclopedia full of facts that you need. It is that, but don't reduce it to that. You see, reading the Bible is not only about learning the truth. It is about the astonishing fact that Christ nourishes us with himself in his word. I love the way Psalm 42 puts this. As the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God, and the living God gives himself to us in Scripture. If you are thirsty to God, turn to Scripture, sacred Scripture. Godfrey of Admund, a 12th century Austrian abbot, he said sacred Scripture is the breast of Jesus. What a beautiful image. You know what he's doing? He's picking up that scene in the Last Supper where John, the beloved disciple, was sitting right next to Jesus and leaned his head on Jesus' chest. I love when our kids get sleepy and they lean their heads upon me. I love how the deepest traditions in the church have said, that's Scripture. Scripture's the breast of Jesus. Lean yourself into it. You want to love Jesus? You want to know Jesus? You want to feel Him next to you? Go to Scripture. Bernard of Clairvaux, a 12th century French abbot, said the thirsty soul eagerly prolongs its contact with Scripture, certain to find in Scripture the one for whom it thirsts. God's word, I've said this to you before, is sweeter than honey in the honeycomb. His words are the kisses of his mouth. They are, like the Song of Solomon says, better than wine. I beg you, immerse yourself in the word, bathe in it, drown in it, drink it until the room starts to spin. We devote so much time and energy in our service to scripture because we have heard Jesus' call to Peter. Do you love me? And we have devoted our lives to loving Christ. That's why our service is saturated with scripture. It appears to me, Jesus says to Peter, do you love me three times? Because Peter had failed Jesus three times. But I want to point out a very fascinating little detail. Look at verse 9. Did any of you notice this? When they got out on the land, they saw what kind of fire? Did any of you notice? A charcoal fire. Does anybody know when the last time a charcoal fire was mentioned in, in John's gospel? John chapter 18, look at verse 18. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. Do you know how deeply smell is associated with memory? Can you see Peter jumping off the boat, swimming to shore? Can you see him when the first smell hits his nostrils? Do you know what he remembered? And here is Jesus provoking that memory. So that he can heal that memory. You see, Jesus takes away our sins and our failures and our false mask. And the way he does this varies from individual to individual and from case to case. But listen, the forgiveness of Jesus is not just about the objective fact of the crucifixion and the resurrection. It is about the existential relationship that you have with him where he enters into your failure and he provokes it. So that you and he can go there together and he can heal the memories of it. And he can heal the residual effects of it. Do you see what Jesus is doing here is not holding before him the great truth of the atonement. That is true and that is good, but I need more than that in my life. I mean, I need that on an eternal level, but on a daily level, there's stuff I've done that haunts me. That I long for Jesus, I don't want him to, I long for him to, this is not fun, but to go there and to heal me. Look, there is nothing on the record against Peter. He has been forgiven, his slate has been wiped clean, that's what the cross, that's what the resurrection does for you when you have faith in Christ. But there are the memories, and there is the imagination there are the sores and the wounds. And so Jesus goes to where the pain is. And if you don't meet Jesus on a ba- daily basis in your own personal devotional life, this is not going to get dealt with. Jesus takes away our, the smell of the charcoal fire lingers, Peter's night of agony. Jesus' night of agony. It was the same night. But because of the latter, because of Jesus' night of agony, the former can be dealt with. Jesus is the Passover lamb who takes away the sin of the world, Peter's sin included, your sin included, my sin, and not just in the objective sense, but he also takes it away in the subjective sense. How do we become who God made us to be? When that is such a difficult, complex, confusing journey, we do this by letting Jesus take us by the hand. We do this through prayerful and scriptural attentiveness to Jesus. That's my second point. Through the intimate personal relationship with your creator who alone is your redeemer. You discover who you truly are. What I am begging you to do is we must rediscover the riches of contemplative prayer. We must learn how to be alone with the lover of our soul. We must learn from the contemplative prayer tradition. How to get alone with Jesus and hear him speaking directly, intimately, personally, subjectively to us. Our great need is to be like Peter. In the words of Thomas Merton, our need like Peter, is to let ourselves be brought naked and defenseless into the center of that dread where we stand alone before God in our nothingness without explanation, without theories, completely dependent upon his mercy and his grace and the light of his truth to show us the way. 2,000 years ago, After a violent death that actually paid the price for your sins and for mine. Jesus was victoriously, miraculously raised from the dead. And in this remarkable event, the God of Israel, who is the creator of the whole world, began the new creation. The resurrection is about God remaking The whole world. He started with Jesus. He remade the body of Jesus. That was the first act of the new creation. And this work of new creation includes you. At the heart of Christianity is your recreation by the power of God's Spirit. Your restoration into the person you were made to be. And you can become this person. You can become truly yourself. Truly human. When you notice needs in this world. And you enter into those needs. As an Easter person, practicing resurrection in the power of Jesus. The whole point of Easter is that God is going to sort out the whole world. He's going to put the whole thing right once and for all. This world, not some far off place called heaven, but Harrisonburg and the Shenandoah Valley and Virginia and America and Mexico and Canada. and the ho- He's going to fix this world. And the resurrection of Jesus is the launching of that project. The resurrection of Jesus. It is the start of the new creation. And it is your commission to announce to the world that that Jesus alone is king. And it is your commission to work for justice and for truth and beauty and goodness wherever your vocation takes you. But to do this well, you must become like Jesus. You must become truly human and truly yourself. And to do that well, you must hear Jesus' question, not only to Peter, but to you. Do you love me? And to hear that question on a deep personal level, you must prayerfully and scripturally attend to Jesus. Let's pray.